is Wednesday, January 13th. Oh, wait, is it? No, it's January 20th. That was last week. Big 2-0. This is Messiah Matters number 329. Let's see how much grief we get for the title of this episode. My name is Caleb Hegg. And drinking from my Trinidad, Trinidad and Tobago mug from my trip down there to visit uh, God's people. What was that? That was 2017. Enjoying it still. Thank you, Brent, for the mug. My name's Rob Vanhoff. That's, I think. No, you are not. That's a lie. That's that's where you were going. That, that. my friends, is a lie. I'm Rob Vanhoff. All right. What's up, everybody? Short attention span. What's up, everybody? What's up? It's been a little while, eh? It's been, uh, last week we didn't have any power. It was stormy. Yeah. It was stormy. It was just, it was. But, you know, here we are. Okay. Um, by the way, for those who don't haven't realized this, if you're watching this on YouTube, the reason that the intro is so long is because that's our countdown. So, um, uh, yeah, we cut that out of the uh, podcast episode and uh, other episode like uh, other platforms. So anyway, um, before we get started, I do want to say that we have a new producer, executive producer, and that is uh, Grace. Grace Korea, she had her name was on the uh, opening credits. Thank you so much for and let's see here. She did write a note. Should we read the note? Cool name. Yeah, love the show. She says love the show. My grandma's name. Oh really? Grace. Grace. There you go. She says love the show. Blessed by Rob and Caleb every week. Really loving to learn more about theological foundations surrounding our Savior and Messiah Jesus, especially uh, expressed through the love and patience you guys exhibit on the show. To those who may not know as much as you two on the topics, keep up. We the great are very work. kind. We are learning. <laughs> I think if you look at the chart of our growth. <laughs> All right, hang on. Let's let's uh, let's give her the uh, final. You've been blessed. <laughs> so I've been asked now to speak at a uh, at a conference in April. And are you okay? Are you dying over there? Good gracious. Yeah, I just, uh, that that water went down the wrong pipe there. Oh, I hate that. So I'll just mute my, if I have to cough, I'll just remember to mute myself. Okay, Fair. you were saying, yeah. conference in April. Yeah, I've been, uh, so the Central Washington Messianic Conference or something like that, uh, Moses Lake, it's going to be good. I got two sessions. They, they have no nice. clue what they're doing. <laughs> they have no clue what they've done. Uh, yeah, it'll be good. I'm excited about that. So in April, I think it's April 24th is when I'm speaking. Come on down. And, uh, I already know that there are going to be some people there that I'm excited to meet. So, uh, people that I've talked to on the phone, but I have not ever met face to face. Right on. That'll be exciting. That's just, uh, that's boy, right around the corner. It is. Okay. Um, we need to jump in cause we got so much to talk about. It's unbelievable. And, uh, so this is one that Rob ha- is not privy to. Um, actually, uh, let's go the other way. Two weeks <laughs> he ag- said privy. <laughs> <laughs> he, okay, two weeks ago, we talked about Michael E., who has been commenting on our YouTube channel. And this is what, and he, remember, for, uh, let me jog everyone's memory here, for those who might not remember. Um, he was the one who said that Abraham was not saved by the blood of Christ. And said that to believe such theology was to uh, was to discount the blood of Christ, which I don't follow that logic. Anyway, in fact, I think it's the opposite. Anyway, 
Um, so uh, he wrote in again, and he says, here is a heresy, because uh, he was commenting on uh, the, I clipped one of our segments uh, on the word heresy. And um, anyway, with all that said, he says, uh, here is a heresy, question for you. Are modern Jews who do not accept Yeshua, but believe in a coming Messiah in the future, in the new covenant? Now, I wrote back and I just said no. That was my only comment back. No, they're not. If a person, and uh, Ephesians talks a lot about this, right? That, uh, you know, it's not about, it's not about uh, bloodline. Bloodline, just because Abraham's your father by blood, that's not going to save you, right? Anyway, okay. So then he writes back and he says, if people can be saved, quote, saved, by faith in a Messiah before he came, and the blood transcends time, then why can't they be saved by rejecting Yeshua as Messiah, but still believe in a Messiah? Now, this is a great question. I actually appreciate this question, even though he was quite snarky about it. Uh, he said something about, like, I'll wait for your hypocrisy, uh, for your response in hypocrisy or whatever. Okay, that's fine. Um, you know, I, it is what it is. Uh, so, but let's, let's respond to this. First of all, this has been something that has been talked about for a very long time. Um, and ultimately, uh, we can talk about the progression of this belief, but Paul talks about this. He says that, that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, right? So what does that mean? He was justified. And I even put in some, um, so, uh, you know, a, a passage from Romans where it says that Abraham was justified by faith. And so, so uh, Michael wrote back and he said we would need to uh, define what justified is. Yeah, that, that's right. He's right about that. We do need to define our terms and, and the terms justification. What does it mean to be justified? It means that he was seen as not guilty. He was just Hence the term justified. He was he was declared not guilty before the Almighty. Right. That means accusations against him have no legal standing exactly. before the judge. Exactly. And so um, the point is, is that Abraham looked forward to a coming Messiah that would deal with sin. And, the, and we see this in Genesis 3, right? That uh, the seed would come and crush the head of the serpent. Okay, so with all of that said, um, what about the Jews who don't believe in Yeshua? Well, first of all, we can't discount the idea of progressive revelation. Certainly there is progressive revelation. I've dealt a lot in my own mind. We've talked about this on the show a lot about Jews who do uh, who did not, like what did the Jewish people believe or what did anyone believe who were ju justified before the coming of Christ? And what I have come to believe is that a person who, like Abraham, believed that the seed that was promised would come and deal with sin. Now, here's the thing about modern Judaism, and I don't, I'm, I don't know anything about who Michael E. is or anything like that, so he might already know this. But a lot of people don't know this. Modern Judaism will tell you that they don't need a Messiah to come and deal with their sin. They are not waiting for someone to come and deal with sin. Yeah, they deny origin, the doctrine of original sin isn't even a... Exactly. And not yeah. only that, but their sin is taken care of through, uh, through the works and through uh, prayer and uh, repentance. They don't need a Messiah to come and die for them. 
because they don't they don't need someone to deal with their sin problem. Um, and so this right here, I don't know if Michael is familiar with this in modern Judaism or not, but ultimately just believing in a coming Messiah is not what saved a person before the coming of Yeshua. And it doesn't save a person now. What saves a person is faith that, that, that the Messiah has, or in the, in the previous, uh, prior to Yeshua, that, that the Messiah would come and deal with the sin problem as the prophecies said. And this gets right, into... Wait, here, here's interesting, Caleb. What you're talking about reminds me of John 4, where John tells us about Yeshua and, and the Samaritan woman at the well. And she says, well, we know the Messiah is going to come and explain all things. So there's an example in the first century of some sort of, yeah, we believe the Messiah is going to come. And then Yeshua says, I'm he, I'm the one. And, and then she believes and she went and told the whole village and then yeah. they all believed. Yeah. So in other words, there is, there is a place where God puts this hope. And I think this is what you were getting at with the Genesis three reference for a coming Messiah. But the point is when they hear the gospel, they automatically believe because yeah, this fits. That's why when Yeshua is transfigured, both Moses and Elijah are there. Right. So whatever Moses yes. believed about the Messiah, whatever Elijah believed about the Messiah, yeah, it was like a no-brainer that Yeshua fulfilled it, and they were boom on board. They no, didn't we, reject it. It's not like well, I'm not going to. Now he doesn't fit my expectation, or you know, it, it's now yeah. If if we want to, the shape wanna... and expectation of who the Messiah is was modified and re re indoctrinated. In sure. new terms, in Judaism, post gospel, post the gospel going out to the world, because they wanted to define Messiah in a way that pointed away from Yeshua and away from the gospel. And we've talked about this in terms of Peter. I've talked about this. I've talked about this in terms of Peter, because Peter doesn't seem to have a notion of of Yeshua dealing with the sin problem. He says, "Let's go to Jerusalem." Right, and this is in the famous passage. Get behind me, Satan! It's also in the same exact passage where not only does he call Peter Satan, but he also says, "You are Petra. You are Petros upon this. You know, I'll build my 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 ecclesia." So you got this this real famous passage, and in this passage, Peter basically says, "Let's go up to Jerusalem. We go to take over Rome," and it, it seems at the time that Peter doesn't understand that Yeshua needs to deal with the sin problem. And so I've talked about, you know, how do we deal with this, Peter, in time, and you know, all this kind of exactly. stuff. So. Luke, in Luke 24, you know, the famous road to Emmaus discussion. It's like, wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things, so to enter into his glory? And it began from Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, etc., and explained everything concerning himself. Okay, that is is Yeshua's official explanation of how to read the Torah and how to read the prophets. They point to him. Moses would not be in a disagreement. Elijah would not be in disagreement. Abraham would not be in disagreement. Isaiah would not be in disagreement. King David would not be in disagreement with anything Yeshua taught on the road to Emmaus. So, it, therefore, it, it, it is obvious there is no salvation apart from the who is the Son of God, because it's only by faith in Messiah, that we that there is a, a capacity for us to please the Father. We have to be in the Son who pleases Him. Well, if we're not in the Son who pleases the Father, 
what are we going to do? There's no workaround. Well, here, and there's here, no the, other way in. You're making a point. You're making a point that we've already made, but we'll make it to Michael again. If you watch this, which I don't know if he watches the full show or not, but if Michael watches this, um, you know, the, the, the balls in your court at this point. And the reason why is because we've already asked, what do you think it means that Abraham was justified? Could, could Abraham stand before the Almighty and the Almighty say not guilty if he was not covered by the blood of Christ? Exactly. And if your answer is yes, he could, then the question is, is, okay, well, then how is he justified? And why aren't we all just justified by that instead of having the yeah, Almighty? Yeah, what's the difference? Say, in other words, yeah, exactly. What's why the would the Almighty between... send Yeshua to, to die on the cross? What I mean, it's it, it, it makes no sense. And by the way, this, uh, this is talked about specifically in the uh, 1689 Baptist Confession. Let's read it. They say this is what they say. They say the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ till after his incarnation. Yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit of it was imparted to the elect in every age since the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices that revealed him and pointed to him as the seed that would bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. Uh, the ba Baptist Confession for the win. And that's 17th century? When was that? 16? Yeah, 1689. Baptist Confession. Uh, now, please... That, I, my friends, I, is older than America. <laughs> I can already hear the emails being typed. Look... I'm not saying that the Baptist Confession is the end-all, be-all. In fact, I've, I disagree with, with portions of the Baptist Confession. All I'm saying is that there is a history of this theology. It's not like all of a sudden we came up with this. Right. All right. Let's move on. We got a sound clip. I wasn't going to do this, but, you know, it's an easy answer. And I think, I, I don't know because I haven't brought this up to Rob, but I think this will be an easy, quick, quick answer. We're going to try to make it quick. Um, and before we do this... Uh, this came in on the comment line, which you too can call 253-465-3205. By the way, I have to get rid of some asbestos tape, right, that, that we found under our house. And so I got it in this bag and I have to call like this line. <laughs> I, this is going somewhere. Trust me. I have to call this hotline to set, to set up a time to drop off this like toxic waste, right? And so I call the guy and it's an answer machine. I'm like, yeah, hi, I need to I need to get rid of this. Give me a call back. My phone number is 253-465-3205. Wait, don't call that number. <laughs> That's not my phone number. I'm just so used to saying it. Anyway, that that is the comment line 253 465 So we got an asbestos. Yeah, exactly. Line. Uh, I don't know what this is. I don't but... know what this is. All right. Um so what was I doing? Oh yes, uh here we go. Here's here's the clip. I was wondering if you would make a comment on Luke four sixteen and specifically it's the uh, Mark six five, the teaching in Nazareth, the statement, and he could not do any mighty work there. I wondered how you work with the uh the aspect of faith and and the actions of Messiah. Okay, this is a great question. Let's go to the text itself. And uh, there's what, actually... What? Mark, Luke what? Okay, he brings up the Luke passage. However, I'm going to circumvent that. And the reason why is because uh, ultimately he's talking about Mark 6, 5. There's parallels in, in, um, three, in all three of the synoptic gospels. Mark 6, 5, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. In the Luke passage, it says, and he he did no great works there. But then in Matthew 13, 58 is when we really have the, the expounding of, of this passage. It says, and he did not do many mighty works there. 
because of their unbelief. And so this is what the caller is actually getting at. He didn't leave his name, which is totally fine. He didn't leave his name, but uh, the, the question is, why couldn't he do any great works there? Was it because lack of faith made it so he w- didn't have the power to do so or not? And my answer to that, I will go first because this I, I studied this this morning and I already had an idea, but I wanted to make sure that I was in good company. Um, basically, I don't think it's that he was unable to do the works. In other words, it's not that he couldn't have healed people because they didn't have faith. I think rather it was that they didn't have faith. And so if he did those works, his works would have been attributed to Satan or to someone else. In other words, they didn't have faith. So him doing those works would have not been of the same result as places where they did have faith. Does that make sense? Do you have anything to add to that? Uh, I think, well, I think that's a good explanation. Um, I, I mean, what's okay. So he healed, he healed some sick people. Yeah, so it, to me, that's, that, that is a miracle already. Of course, he, it says so, that he so does. So we have he, to, yeah. right? So we have to differentiate what is. There's a few things. A one that Yeshua only does the will of the Father. Right. That's one thing we have to keep in mind. Another is that we have to understand what is this word uh, dunamis, which is translated miracle in like the NASB, and then the fact that he did heal some sick people, which to me is a miracle. Yeah, so, course. so the idea is, well, he's doing something that I would call a miracle by healing sick people. And on the other hand, he's never going to do anything that the father does not direct him to do. So then there's this middle bit of what is this certain, what are the, the mighty things that are mighty thing that he is not able to do there. Right. Um, and, and, you know, we could speculate, you know, uh, I mean, right before it, he says, a prophet is not with, without honor, except in his hometown. Right. Um, so there's something about their, um, yeah, their stubbornness of heart. That it, that for some reason, the father is saying, is denying those people something that, Yeshua was in Yeshua's power to do, to bless them, but that blessing was withheld due to stubbornness of heart right. of some sort, at least for that time being. And it says he wondered at their unbelief. Right. So, boy, I mean, I, the way I read that, Yeshua's going away going, man. They you know? wouldn't have believed the miracles anyway. Exactly. Why does Yeshua say, don't give, don't put pearls before swine? Right. Why does he say that? He's not talking about pigs right. or dogs. He's talking about people. <laughs> yeah. And, nice. and there's something here where by, by the leading of the, the Holy Spirit, it was, the line was drawn. Exactly. And Yeshua was obedient. So that's the way I read it. Um, we got a super chat. So, nice. um, yeah, from Mary again, this is the second week super in a row. Chat, super chat. You've been blessed. Let's move on. Let's move on. Okay. So, um, the, uh, the title, <laughs> I, I don't did, know what the title is. I did is the, it? I did this on purpose cause I knew that the, the, I, I've been <laughs> shocked by the way. 
at the amount of people who have commented basically affirming annihilation theology. Now, I put the title of this as Annihilating Annihilation Theory. <laughs> now, I know what's going to happen. You're going to have all throw that doctrine into the lake of fire. I know what's going to happen. You're going to have all these people, oh, that was a weak argument. You didn't annihilate anything. I get it, okay? I, I It's tongue-in-cheek. But the point is, is that, uh, yeah, we don't believe in it. I, I think that... I think that we got 40 minutes left at least, minimum. So I think we can go to one more thing. Now, Mr. C in the chat room, I got your uh, I got your email. I got your email, brother. And and it's on the list. Don't worry about it. Um, we'll talk about that here. Uh, but I want to go, Lois Morgan, I said that we were going to talk about her thing. Let's talk about it. This is a great comment. It's... it's uh, Actually, it's kind of wrapped up with Mr. C, one of his questions as well. So maybe, I don't know. I don't know if we want to do a dual comment here. But Lois writes in, and I mean, she's a top student at Torah Resource Institute. And you can see why here. This uh, this shows the brilliance of thought. She says, so we understand that parts of the Torah for, quote, life in the land are for life in the land. Now, this is going to play into Mr. C's comment who comments about sacrifices in the land as it pertains to celebrating the feast. Anyway, we'll get to that later. What Lois says is, I'm wondering if we should apply that distinction to people labels also regarding the gare that dwells among you. How can we have that classification of person now since we don't have a predominantly covenantal, as in covenant with Yeshua, Israel, in the land. Since the progressive revelation given to Paul, we can understand that being in Israel is by being in what your father calls the Israelite par excellence, Yeshua. So do we currently have people that fit the label of dwelling among Israel, that have attached themselves to Israel's God, that is believe, but are distinguished from Israel by bloodline? That seemed to be what you were talking about, but I'm having a hard time visualizing how that looks today as most believers today do not, quote, sojourn with Israel. Or maybe it looks like you are using the label Israel more than one way. Another way of thinking about it is to ask whether what, what was said in Torah was just about identity of groups due to background and belief, or was it more in the practical level of actual physically living geographically in a specific space with specific other people? This is a great question, and I'm going to jump on it first. Here's what I think. I think that, yes, uh, you did have Israel. First of all, let's distinguish what we mean by Israel. I do use Israel in multiple ways, as I think the scriptures do. I think that there is physical Israel. These are the physical descendants of Jacob who have uh, been given the promise and carry the covenants with them, okay? Now, this doesn't, that, that, Israel, that Israel can be talked about in terms of uh, uh, faith in Yeshua or not. That doesn't matter. They are physical descendants of Jacob. They are the nation of Israel. And if a person comes into covenant relationship with God, they don't become physical Israel. Okay, now, Unlike many people, I don't believe in a spiritual Israel. I don't believe there is such a thing. However, I do believe that there is covenantal Israel in a different covenantal way. So we have different covenants. They all work in unison together. However, the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant are written on the heart. Okay? 
So the Abrahamic covenant is the promise of the coming Messiah, which inaugurates or brings in and allows the uh, new covenant, which Abraham was a part of, to go in both directions through faith in the Messiah. Okay. With all of that said, a person who is not physical Israel, they can become part of Israel. That doesn't mean become physical Israel, but they can become a part of the covenant people of God and enlarge Israel, the covenant people, by coming into covenant with God. This is new covenant Israel. And, and that's not to displace or replace the, the physical Israel. In fact, those who are not believers eventually will be broken off of Israel. And those, but there's always been a remnant and there always will be a remnant of physical believing Israel. Okay, now that we've defined what how I use Israel, let's talk about Lois's question. The fact of the matter is, is that we that we as let's say Gentiles, whether whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, living in the diaspora, it doesn't matter. Um, I I see that the laws of of uh, the ger uh, being predominantly the ger who sojourns among you. That is a person who comes into covenant relationship with God who is among you. And this can be uh, worked out in our faith no matter what region we're in. For instance, if I'm in Tacoma, Washington, and I have a church and a newcomer comes, I don't discriminate against the newcomer because they are any race or because they are even from a different background, Roman Catholic, we have some uh, people who come from a Roman Catholic background in our in our congregation. So the point is, is that I treat people the same way, and the laws still apply, just like in the Torah. In other words, we don't discriminate because of bloodline, and I think that's ultimately where the uh, laws of the Gare come from. They are to be treated just like everyone else that is in your community. Rob? I think that's right. <laughs> Boom! I don't, I don't, I don't have it. <laughs> <laughs> what he said. <laughs> All right. Now, let's piggyback that that real quick then with Mr. C's second well, oh, comment. You know what? I did have one thought along the way Go. concerning one of the things Lois said it brought up originally has to do with the land. One thing that I want to keep in mind is, for example, in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, he cites to them the commandment from the 10 words from Exodus 20 and, and Deuteronomy 5, of honor your father and your mother, and it will be well with you, and you will live long on the earth. He says, this is the first commandment with a promise. Now, to live long on the earth, does that mean in the land of Israel? Or does that mean even in Ephesus, even in Asia Minor, or wherever you are on God's planet, since the world is the Lord's in all its fullness, that the that blessing and that promise with with regard to that specific commandment given at Sinai would apply wherever you are on the planet right? in honoring your father and mother, or does that only apply in the land of Israel? So there's an example where I'd say when it's talking about blessing in the land, there is something to be looked at with respect to that issue. What's, what happens when you leave the land of Israel do a whole bunch of commandments automatically fall off. Right. And therefore, if I'm not even an Israelite, does my proximity to covenantal people change if I'm in the diaspora versus if I'm on a plot of tribal 
ancestral land in in Israel. This is perfect. Let, let's let's uh, let's bring the second comment in because Mr. C actually speaks directly to this. This is his question, Mr. C, who is in the chat room quite, uh, currently. And by the way, this is his second. Um, yeah, this is his second comment. So he actually has two, but we'll just go with one. Is my question is related as it, it concerns the feasts, reading about them in the book of Leviticus. Now, he had something before this about uh, how we talked about sacrifices can only be done at the temple. So keep that in mind. He says, it seems to me that all slash most of the feasts have some form of sacrifice or offering associated with them. That's true. That's true. Uh, if we are not advised to offer sacrifices due to lack of the temple, how are the associated feast required? How are we to perform part of something, but not the whole? I have read and heard groups and peoples explaining that there is not any effectual purpose to the feast other than celebration and showing obedience. I would disagree with that. I would strongly disagree with that. We'll talk about that in a second, which brings my thought back to part or whole. Some say that we keep what we can of the Torah, considering the lack of the temple uh, and relates to not being allowed to carry out biblical law due to being limited by culture and laws of the land. I tend to see things as black and white, do it all or don't, required or not required. I would like to know your opinions on this. You can't look at things like this as black or white because the Torah is not black or white about a lot of things. Um, and this is one of the reasons that uh, community is so important. But let's let's talk about the idea that um, of, of festivals not basically in the diaspora. First of all, let's go to the Torah itself. Um, I always love to, to bring in this, this scripture and, and let people ruminate on it uh, as we talk about things like this. Deuteronomy 30, verse 1 through 3, it says, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse. He's talking about the covenantal blessing and curses here, right? This is uh, after, well, anyway. Which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. So we're talking about the diaspora. When you're in the diaspora and you think of all these things that God has commanded you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. I could preach this. Um, the point is, is that there are certainly some things that we can't do in the diaspora. There's certainly not. And we have an, a great example of this in 1 uh, Corinthians. Because Paul talks about them celebrating the festival of Passover. And what does he say? say? Therefore, Yeshua is your Pascha. In other words, you don't have a Passover lamb. But he says, but celebrate the feast with joy and gladness. So... He tells them that they're supposed to be celebrating the feast. They don't have a Passover lamb because they're not in Jerusalem. But for believers, we do have a Passover lamb. We do have a Yom Kippur lamb. We do, and now that in the in the real temple, right? That doesn't mean we have the shadow that's here on earth. But it means that we are to do as much as possible um, because that's what the Lord has commanded us to do. And I think that this goes for, back to Lois's question, I think this goes for any command that we can possibly do. 
I know the agricultural uh, uh, requirements are for the land of Israel. However, should we practice them if we're not in the land of Israel? I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing to practice the, the commands of Torah. So I think that there's a lot of different things that we would try to do. You know, it's just like corpse defilement. In, in, with, in the diaspora, would you actually worry about corpse defilement? Well, you'd probably wash after touching a corpse as the Torah commands. But if you're in the diaspora, if you're up in Corinth or something like that, you're not going to travel all the way to the, to the uh, you know, what if you're a coroner? In Corinth, you're not going to travel 426 nautical miles every time that you touch a dead body. No, of course not. You're going to wait until you go into Jerusalem to do that. And so some of the law, are you going to wash as the Torah commands in Leviticus? Of course you are. So we do as much as we possibly can. And I know that's that's one that, you know, one of the things that he brought up, that Mr. C brought up that he doesn't like but I think that's just kind of, that's what the Deuteronomy 31 through 3 passage seems to say to me. What do you think, Rob? Well, again, I, I look to the scripture. I see, for example, I, I think we maybe talked about this before a few times, but uh, Daniel in the exile, he prays at the time of the offering right. towards Jerusalem. So there's no temple. There's no priesthood. But yet... Daniel's worship and his his love of God and the rhythm of his day is still defined according to Jerusalem and the time of the mincha of the of the offering would should it be there and we know that the the disciples after Yeshua's resurrection they go at the same time of prayer they go to the, to the to the temple and worship so when the temple, so there's, in, in other words, there's no difference in intent of heart between Daniel and the post-resurrection disciples in Jerusalem. The difference is just that there's a physical temple there. And so they have access and they participate in things that Daniel could not. Right. But it still, they still had the same orientation. Right. And, and here's another example. In the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, we learn about John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, who is of the sons of Aaron. And he goes in and offers burn incense uh, at the altar of incense at the, at the appropriate time, according to his division of the priestly order. But we know that there's no Ark of the Covenant in there. There's right. no, uh, it's, it, <laughs> yeah. it, there's no Ark of the Covenant. So it's, he's not going into the Holy of Holies, but he's, but he is doing something that only one Cohen could go and do, which is do the, the uh, go in by himself into the holy place where the menorah is, where the table of showbread is, and where the, the altar of incense is. That's where he goes. And so you can say, oh, there's no Ark of the Covenant here. Let's get out of here. This this whole thing is, this is we stupid. can't do it. We can't do it. Yeah, it's why not are we doing all here. This? this is stupid. Yeah. So that's just what's in Scripture. I, and, I, and so if, if Scripture is, to, is here for our edification and instruction, and guidance as we grow as believers, then it seems the the signposts in Scripture are in agreement with with our position. Uh, real quickly, because I, I, we need to get to annihilation uh, theology. Um, but real quickly, he says, and th- by the way, great comment, Mister C. I mean, I, I'm very grateful for your uh, both of your questions. They're good questions. He says here. Um, 
He says, I have read and heard groups and people explaining that there is not any effectual purpose to the feast other than celebration and showing obedience. I don't know what you would mean, what we would have to define effectual purpose, but I think that there is an effect. And that effect is uh, that these, that the festivals do one, their, their number one main goal and priority in my mind. So people are going to tell you, oh, it was to, you know, Yom Kippur, its main goal was to take away the sin of, of the nation of, of Israel. Well, that's one of its functions, but it's not its main function in my mind. Passover is going to, people are going to say, oh, well, it was to bring people out uh, of Egypt. Well, that might have been its function, but it was not its main function. All five of the major festivals slash holidays, whatever you want to call them, feast days of the Torah, were for, the number one purpose was to point people to Yeshua and the work on the cross. And that still holds true today. When your child asks you, what is the meaning of the, this thing that you do? You are to say, our God brought us out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, right? I mean, this is in Exodus. So the, the point is, is that we, the, even if we have Christ now, and this is one of the, this is one of the downfalls of the mainstream Christian church to say, we don't need, we don't need to celebrate these festivals anymore. You got children sitting in your, in the pews, you got children sitting in your congregations and at your table who are going to ask questions. And guess what? If they are not regenerate yet, you want to give them the message of Christ. And you do that in the exact same way that the Torah tells you to through the festivals and through the Torah, of course. It is the tutor that brings us to Christ. So uh, that is the effectual, uh, I mean, maybe I'm using that term wrong. I don't know how Mr. C was, was trying to use it. Um, so, oh, he says saving value. So, yeah, I think that they do have saving value in the sense, I mean, no work has saving value. But, the, the, but my point here is that the effectual purpose of the feast is to bring a person to Christ, to show that we need a, a substitutionary uh, sacrifice and to show what that substitutionary sacrifice is. It's not the animal that dies, Hebrews, right? The, the blood of bulls and goats cannot save. So the point is, is that uh, these were all pointing to one thing, and that one thing is the Messiah on the cross. Okay, um, let's turn to annihilation theory. Now, we got all, we got so many comments on this. It was it, actually it's extremely disheartening. <laughs> it is extremely disheartening to see how many people are giving up on the uh, the doctrine of eternal punishment of the wicked. I mean, this is the early church in the very beginning deemed a, a rejection of an eternal punishment of the wicked as heresy. Let's bring it back to that word that we talked about two weeks ago, heresy. And honestly, I think that this is heresy. Not that a person who believes this is necessarily a heretic, necessarily. However, um, I think that this is a major, major theological downfall for those who are giving up on the, uh, the, such a doctrine. Now, uh, we got a lot of flack because two weeks ago, I, we talked about one of my theories of annihilation theory. Everybody said, oh, you're talking about, this is just what you think. This isn't from the word. Fair enough. Fair enough. Let's go to the word. Actually, let's go the, the truth group said, I was looking forward to learning more about this topic, but instead, all you did was give us your personal opinions. Do you have any other videos or on your channel that might address this topic from a biblical standpoint? 
Okay. Uh, great point. Duly noted. Um, and then we got people who said, uh, okay, there's a, uh, there is a website dedicated to annihilation theory and proving that the Bible has nothing to say about eternal punishment of the wicked. I went to this site. It's called Rethinking Hell. If you're watching this on YouTube, there's a link in the YouTube description to this site. I put it there because uh, if you want to go look at what these people have to say, by all means, um, I found their arguments to be lackluster at best. Most of them, if not all of them, I think most of them, some of them have some training, but um, most of them don't. They, in terms of biblical training, that's not to discount them. That's not to say that they they don't have something good to say. However, on this subject, there's a lot lacking. You can also go to another link that I have in the description on the YouTube uh, description, which is Desiring God, Why Hell is Eternal. Um, and Ligonier Ministries recently just put out a uh, teaching by R.C. Sproul. He nailed this. He nailed it. Uh, and you're going to hear, if you listen to that, you're going to hear some of the things, uh, the same things that uh, he says I'm going to say. First of all, one of the points that R.C. Sproul makes, and I will, I will stop talking here in just a second, Rob, and you can pick up if you want to. One of the things that R.C. Sproul says so brilliantly is that the person who speaks the most about hell in the entire Bible is Yeshua. And in fact, Yeshua talks more about hell than he does about heaven. Let that one sink in, everybody. <laughs> and it's not a place that you want to go. It's not a place that it, it is described throughout the Bible as a place of torment, gnashing of teeth. Um, and it's so, you know, but we're going to focus in on Mark chapter 9, verse 42 through 48. There's a lot that goes on in this passage. Uh, a lot of the uh, early manuscripts have taken out a certain pass, uh, uh, saying of this uh, until the end. Let's read it. Mark 9, 24 through, uh, I'm sorry, Mark 9, 42 through 48. He says, this is Yeshua talking. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell. Now, he's the word here for hell is Gehenna. We'll talk about that. Okay, first let's stop. Why? Just from a logical perspective, if... Gehenna or the afterlife or whatever it may be is for the wicked is annihilation. Then why would it matter whether or not I have my two hands or not? If I'm just going to be annihilated, who cares if I have my two hands or not? Why not just have both of my hands here and enter into annihilation, quote unquote, with both my hands? I'm just getting annihilated anyway. The rest of my body, right? So just from the very beginning... From a logical perspective, this makes no sense. Yeshua's words make no sense. Rob, you want to jump in? Well, the one passage that came to mind, <clears throat> pardon me, is Paul cites in 1 Corinthians 5, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So obviously Paul is not <laughs> citing that as a scripture. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. The idea is if, if there is no consequence to sin, 
ultimately, then let's party up in this world. And we're just going to die and just, it'll be over with. So party while you can. Yeah, exactly. Great point. Right? I mean, Paul. Paul's not, the idea that I love how R.C. Sproul gave us the basic facts of who speaks the most about Gehenna in the Bible, right? That it's Yeshua. And Yeshua, it's a deterrent. It should scare us. It should, it should, it should reaffirm the fear of God that God's people already have. And it, it, it goes out as a warning in advance to the wicked. But if, if it was just, dis- if, if the idea was that there is no consequence to sin other than you just die, then, then what's the logic of obeying God in terms of some sort of reward or, or penalty So can I can I jump in real quick? Sure. Uh, in the chat room, I don't see how it could be classified as heresy either way. Neither changes the foundation of the gospel. Both are forms of punishment that last forever. I would disagree with that thoroughly. And the reason why is wait, because... Wait, which is the punishment that lasts forever? Uh, well, both of them. Uh, not existing or, or... How is not existing a punishment? Yeah, exactly. Because you don't... The, the idea of punishment is that the... You know, what's the philosophy here behind punishment? Removal from existence. How is that a punishment? Well, not only you that, don't, you, there's no conscious, there, there's no consciousness. There's no. And this is what I was trying to say two weeks ago is that if that's the case, then we've all experienced hell up until the time we were born, non existence. But, but beyond that, it, this diminishes the, the, uh, the, but you can't, you can't, right? You can't even experience non-existence. Yeah, exactly. Because you don't, you don't even exist. So yeah, exactly. you don't, you don't experience anything. So anyway, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. And, I, and beyond I, that, I think that it, it diminishes the holiness of God. I, I, I keep saying this, and people keep saying I don't understand what you're saying. But the idea that God's holiness does not demand perfection. Or that his wrath will be poured out fully on those who do not who are who have gone against his holiness. So the idea is now again, I, it's not in my wheelhouse here, but the idea, the way I understand it, with annihilation is that there's a temporary suffering. So let's say a wicked person dies; they suffer f- for some finite short amount of time and then they disappear yeah actually so th- what you're talking about this is actually a key aspect to this uh or wreath or what is it called uh yeah rethinkinghell.com they base all of their arguments on this idea that gehenna is actually a place where people who are wicked go before the judgment so they spend this time in gehenna and then at the end, and they, they do this because of the passage in Revelation where Gehenna is said to be thrown into the lake of fire. Um, th- there's a lot of problems with this. but ba- So basically what they're saying is that before a person is judged, they're put into the lake of fire. So I don't understand how that Whether you're, work. so are you not? No, uh, yeah, exactly. So are you already judged? If yeah, exactly. would the, Does that mean the wicked go to, or the righteous go to Gehenna too and Ex- wait? Exactly. There, there's so many problems with, with this theology. Anyway, um, so they their arguments, before you go to RethinkingHell.com and start 
start studying know that this is what their argument has to be based on is that Gehenna is a pre hell experience for the wicked. So what do they did again? I don't know. I, I really don't care what they say about anything, but Yeshua again in Luke talks about, you know, the rich man and Lazarus and the Lazarus goes with, is with Avraham when he dies. Yeah. They say that's Gehenna. So that's beforehand. Well, so, 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 Dude, the look the, of wait a minute, wait a minute. Face. The rich man, the rich man <laughs> is in torment and he wants to go to Gehenna where he can, he wants to go to the trash heap. Okay. So, so you're bringing this back to, you're bringing this back to Mark nine and I want to, I, I want to oh, finish, okay. I want to finish this off, which is great. So I don't need to understand the perspective. Yeah. Perspective. Let, let's so, keep going with, with Mark nine, 42 through 48, because this I don't understand how you could get around this text. And I went and, and read Rethinking Hell's uh, work work that they've done on this passage. It is It answers nothing. In fact, I think that they've really, really mishandled it. I think we should retitle our show today, Rethinking, Rethinking Hell. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, uh, so, it says, so let's keep going with this text in Mark 9. It says, <laughs> It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go to hell into the unquenchable fire. Okay, and then there are later texts that say that add this part where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. End of okay. So now all of the texts have this part coming right now. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having two, your two feet to be cast into hell. That's Gehenna. And then uh, some later manuscripts add where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And then all the manuscripts have, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to cast into hell. And then this is in every manuscript. This last one is where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is a, uh, this is a quote, the, the, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched from Isaiah 66, 24. Okay. What does it mean? What does it mean where the fire does, is not quenched and the worm does not die? We need to know some some uh, Tanakh history for this. And basically what happens is you have Israel enter the land and the Israel turns to uh, to idol worship. The worst kind of idol worship, in fact, they turn to Moloch. And what they do under the uh, rebellious kings is they actually start to do the worst form of idol worship. To Moloch, they start actually sacrificing their children. And they do this in the Valley of Gehenim, okay? And I've actually been to that valley. It's it's beautiful now, but anyway, not the point. Josiah, that's why the rich. That's why the rich man wants to go there, because <laughs> that's where Lazarus is hanging out with Abraham. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, obviously, Yeshua is using metaphor here. Obviously, uh, I don't think anyone's going to argue with that. But the point is, is that now we need to know the history of this place to understand why Yeshua is u- using it as a metaphor. Josiah comes around, King Josiah, and he says, "Nope, not on my watch. We're getting rid of this." So he doesn't want human child sacrifice to be done anymore. So he goes to this valley, and what does he do? He turns it into the public trash dump, the the Israel dump. That's what he turns it into. And what they do is they start bringing all of their their disgusting uh, trash. They bring in, and actually this is where the runoff for the temple blood went, some people believe, right? And so it smells like death. And guess what they do to get rid of the trash? They light it on fire. Now, here's where the metaphor comes in. 
Why does the why is the fire never quenched? Because the fuel never is eaten up. The fuel keeps coming. It's it never ends. And why does the worm not die? Because the trash continue the 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 source of of what the worm eats does not die. It doesn't go away. As soon as someone eats some of it, guess what? Well, worm eats some of it, more is there. It's never unquenched. It's never gone. It's the fuel that he's talking about. This is a metaphor for eternity. That's exactly what this is a metaphor uh, that is being spoken to. R.C. Sproul says this great. Is this a liter literal lake of fire? Probably not. And some people think that it's a great thing. Oh, yeah, so happy it's not a literal lake of fire. If you go into, some people think that hell also is a place where uh, God, you're separated from God. That is not the case either. Hell is a place where God's wrath is fully poured out. And I can guarantee you this. Any person who spends one minute, one second in hell will pray and beg for a literal lake of fire. And the reason why is because it would be a blessing to be in a literal lake of burning fire for eternity as opposed to being in a place where the ever-living, almighty, holy God pours out his wrath. I guarantee it. But the metaphor is to show that it is the worst thing that you can think about. Gehenna was a nasty, disgusting, horrible place. The fires never went out. The fuel never got burnt up all like fully. They never had to relight the fire on new, on new um, material. And why was that? Because it was constant. This is the metaphor that's given. It's not a metaphor of, oh, yeah, it's just a bad place and a corpse is just going to burn forever in it. That's not what he's saying. Well, yeah, well, and we also have the parallel in like Daniel 12, too. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. They'll wake up. Right. These to everlasting life, l'chaye olam, and others to, to disgrace and abhorrence olam. So on the basis of Daniel 12, if you were to say that punishment is finite, then that means eternal life is really not eternal, that they're both fixed, they're both limited. That, yeah, the righteous have their reward, which is, has, has, a time, has a clock ticking on it, and the wicked have their reward, which has a clock ticking on it. And at the end of that, it all just disappears. The righteous with the wicked all disappear. And I don't think that's what Yeshua wants us to, to, to think. You know, I got excoriated in the comment section for my, for my treatment of what death is. And the, so I say, I have said that I believe death means separation. It's either separation from your body or it's separate, you know, in, in the garden, it's obviously separation from God. They don't die. They don't physically die. Adam and Eve don't physically die on the day that they, that they sin. And People in the chat, people in the chat comments uh, on the YouTube video that we put out, that literally said, "Well, that's because to us a year is uh, a day is or to God a day. One of our days is a thousand years, and so they really did die in that in that day. It really is that how we're supposed to keep the Sabbath? Are we supposed to work for you know six thousand years and then on the seven thousand year? No." 
the, the, the Torah clearly puts down a 24-hour day and a seven-day work week. Six-day work week, one day off. But you understand what I'm saying. It's a seven-day rotation in 24 hours. And the day that they ate of the fruit, they did die because they were separated. They were taken out of covenant relationship with God. I don't see how you can, any other explanation for that. Death is, in that context, death is considered separation from God. Separation in terms of no longer being in covenant relationship, the covenant relationship that they had. This is the gospel message. I mean, I just don't, the idea that people are against this is just ridiculous. Um, however, you know what, I, I think that a lot of this comes from, and maybe I shouldn't say that, because I'm sure that there are good people out there who believe that uh, in annihilation theology. However, to me, it seems like a lack of, of uh, truly facing the text of Scripture. The metaphor that is given is that a person who is separated covenantally for eternity with the Almighty God suffers under the wrath of God. There is gnashing of teeth. That is not a place that you want to go. I don't know what it is, but it's not a place you want to go. All right. Uh, before we uh, finish here, we need to say thank you to Lee for a super chat in the chat room. You've been blessed. You know, at some point we'll have so many of those in one in one uh, show that we won't be able to do that for everyone. But right now, that's not the case. So enjoy them. Enjoy your blessings when they come. <laughs> uh, anything else you want to say, Rob? Nope. Uh, well, <laughs> one big thought. We're, what do we think we're entitled to in as having life in God's creation? Am I entitled to like... Uh, just whatever I want? Am I entitled to be in a situation where I can judge God, judge the creator? Um, well, it, I think it, it's easy for us to time. imagine ourselves as rational. Oh, I'm rational. I have a sense of what is right and what is just. And it just wouldn't be just for God to do that. But at the same time, if I'm saying God would not be just for there to be uh, eternity of separation from him, weeping and gnashing of teeth, the worm does not die. How could I say it's just that God would give eternal life to sinners just because, just because they are born again? This, what you're talking That's not just. How is it just for God to, to reward the righteous with eternal life? What you're what did talking they, they, What did they do to earn that? What you're talking about is the is i mean i came to this realization in my life and i think luther did in his life you can read all about his his grace revelation when he reads romans and i think that most believers if not all believers come to at least some form of this revelation which is that if god told me and rc sproul says this as well if god if an audible audible voice came to me and said you know you're going to spend eternity in hell the only thing that I would be able to say is, okay, I, de I deserve that. If you don't, this is the overwhelming grace of God that we as sinners have spit in the face of the almighty, all-holy God. 
We are the opposite of holy. And for some reason, he has given us grace to come into relationship with him, even though we don't deserve it. What do we deserve? If you don't think that we deserve eternal punishment for spitting in the face of the Almighty God, you have not understood the holiness of God. That's what I mean by entitled. Like somehow I'm entitled. Oh, right. I'm not that bad. Yeah, exactly. I'm a good person, Caleb. And, but God, that, God would not be just. But this is this is a turning. This is the turning point for a person when they come to Christ is understanding. Oh, the weight of my sin. Oh, the uh, the burden that that you know. And I re, Pilgrim's Progress. You know that weight of the sin. And I think that for some of us who have known the truth yet turned from the Almighty and lived a life. Uh, not in step with his with his wishes. It's even worse because we realize what we have done, and this is where we come uh, face to the floor, understanding that the Almighty God has loved us anyway. While you were still dead in your trespasses and sin, right? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, while you were still dead in your trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. Ephesians 2, right? This is the... Preach it, brother. This is, I mean, this is the overwhelming uh, truth of the gospel message. And, and, I, and this is one of the reasons that I continue to say that it diminishes the holiness of God when we try to say that annihilation theology is a, uh, is a biblical theology. It, it undercuts who God is, and it, and it diminishes our sin. All right, that's all I got. We are so happy to be back with you guys. I know that sounds weird, but it is true. Uh, we love uh, we love coming on air and talking with everybody. Thank you, everybody in the chat room, for being a part of the conversation and for being here. Um, and uh, thank you, everyone, even the people we disagree with. We are so grateful for the people who leave comments, for the people who call our comment line, for the people who send us emails, even when they are not kind. Uh, we use them, <laughs> even even some of the ones that are not kind. Uh, we we uh, we sometimes use those as well. And uh, this show couldn't happen if it weren't for you guys. So uh, thank you so much. Don't forget to uh, give us a call two five three four six five thirty two zero five. It's two five three four six five thirty two zero five. We listen to every single message. It's just an uh, answering machine. You don't talk to us. You can also shoot us an email. Seahagatoraresource dot com. It's cheggatoryresource.com, and don't forget to subscribe, like uh, this YouTube channel. It helps us. I know that sounds weird, but it actually does help us. We hope that this conversation has done at least one thing, and that is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. You know why? Because Messiah matters. 